Michael Ignatiev is a historian, political philosopher, writer, and currently the rector and president of Central European University in Budapest. He previously served as a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as a centennial chair at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs in New York, and as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. Please give a really warm welcome and a congratulations to Mr. Michael Ignatieff. That's terrific. I do want to thank uh, Zarklow Public Square for this, this uh, award. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to be here. I'm a little nervous about it because one chapter of this book is about Los Angeles. And everybody in this room knows more about Los Angeles than I do, but I went ahead and wrote about it, which is a very foolish position to be in. But there you are. I hope if you do read the book that you will find something in that chapter that, even if I haven't got it quite right, strikes a chord with you about a community that I came to be very impressed by and learned a lot from. I have a few shout-outs I, I need to go through very briefly, which is this research was funded by a wonderful organization called the Carnegie, Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs in New York. And they funded three years of research that sent me around the world to Brazil and Bosnia and South Africa and Myanmar and Japan and LA and New York. And there were a lot of people in, in Los Angeles who made the whole project really possible for me. Some wonderful people at USC, Lynn Boyd Judson and Manuel Pastor. Some of your great community leaders, Reverend Mark Whitlock, I don't know whether he's here, but even if he isn't, I want to thank him for being the leader he is in the community, and a guy in South Central called Akil Bashir, a lot of people. Uh, you can't write the kind of book I wrote unless you listen and learn from those people, and I do want to use this opportunity to thank them. I, I learned a lot in L.A. I, one of the things I learned or I got a sense of was this idea of a moral operating system, a sense that uh, just like we have computers, they have operating systems. We never think about them when we turn them on in the morning. They just start up. A lot of the moral order of our cities are like that, uh, a kind of tacit uh, set of procedures, processes, civilities that we don't even think about. Um, I call them the ordinary virtues that, that we count on uh, to display uh, and that they allow communities of race and creed and class to live together across enormous differences. And I saw those moral operating systems in, at work in, in Los Angeles. I also saw, I, I came to Los Angeles also because this is a city where those moral operating systems broke down. And they broke down in terrible violence in 1965 and then after the Rodney King incident. So Los Angeles was very important to my project because it's a place where you could see the moral operating systems managing diversity so successfully, but also it's the place where they collapsed into violence and chaos and, 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 and terror. And so it then became a study of recovery, how, how communities pull back from the brink and think we're not gonna do that again 
and then work to re-stitch the bonds of community between uh, communities of race and color and creed and class who had been riven by violence. So uh, L.A. was important to this project, and I'm sort of nervous coming back here, as I say, because you know more about the city than I do, but I just... I guess it's my way of saying how much I learned from you. The ordinary virtues, by the way, are very different from the heroic virtues. We, we think a lot about heroic virtues like courage and self-sacrifice. The ordinary virtues are much more humble. Uh, trust, forbearance, live and let live. Um, but we don't celebrate the ordinary virtues enough. Um, you, a good society could almost be defined by the degree to which it en enables and empowers ordinary virtues so that no one has to be a hero. You know, People can just live together without heroic displays of, of reaching across terrible divides. It just becomes normal. Um, that's what the word ordinary is trying to convey. And I don't, when I talk about ordinary, I don't mean somebody else. I mean us. I mean the people in this room. I mean us. I'm talking about myself, not some other group of persons um, who we sometimes use the word ordinary in a condescending way. I don't, I don't mean to do so. Um, the, the subject of this is, is the relationship between ordinary virtues, but also universal values. And I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the things about uh, our moral operating systems is just how much they have changed uh, in my lifetime. I'm an aging gentleman in my declining years, born after the Second World War. And so my starting point is, is after 1945. And we have been through a moral revolution uh, since 1945, the, the amplitude and scale of which I don't think we often think about. Um, I break it into three specific pieces. Um, it's a kind of triple revolution that's occurred to us, and uh, it shaped all of our virtues. It shaped all of our moral values in a deep way. I think the first element of it, which we don't think about very much, is, 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 is the end of empire, the end of colonialism, and the self-determination revolution. In 1945, if you were a, a white person like me, especially uh, I have British heritage, you you did grow up thinking that you were born to rule the world. Um, and um, that imperial habit, that sense of innate racial superiority that went with being um, a person uh, was in business in 1945, and it's not in business now. Um, the end of colonialism meant that uh, peoples who had been kept in sub subaltern and subordinate positions, uh, new freedom. They often learned freedom in a very bitter way. Self-determination turned out to be horrible and difficult for the nations of Africa and Asia, but they were free to choose their own masters and make their own mistakes. And that self-determination revolution has, has produced a norm, which you see in the United Nations, of the equality of peoples and the equality of, of nations. And however um, violated that may be in practice, it, it has changed uh, the, the relations between peoples in a fundamental uh, way. 
the second revolution, so the first revolution is the self-determination revolution. The second one is the democratic revolution, which went hand in hand with it. The idea that the basic norm of political life should be that uh, people choose their own rulers. And that, the, that empowerment of the sovereignty of people we take for granted, but it was a strange idea for most of the world in 1945. And the third revolution, which we've all lived in, has come into this room and changed all our lives, is what you could call the rights revolution. Um, when you think of civil rights in the United States, I'm a Canadian, but the, the transformative global impact of your civil rights revolution uh, swept, swept through the world. Um, and uh, so I have a dream that that canonical speech for you is a canonical speech for the whole world. Um, just as the uh, revolution in gay equality, which in so many ways began in the United States as a revolution now shared by the world. Feminism, so much of feminism dates or originates in, in the United States. That triple uh, uh, rights revolution has, has changed the world and changed our, our moral compass. You put all those things together and you get what seems to me a new global norm, and a new basic uh, presumption, which again is so basic we don't think about it. And I, I call it the norm of the equality of voice. Um, and the other word for it is human rights. Um, the norm that says all peoples are equal. The norm that says all races are equal. The norm that says all individuals are equal. Um, look, it's equality of voice. It's not equality of respect. And please understand when I use the word norm, let's not think that I mean the reality. We are a long way from equality in fact. But the norm is, has been convulsively important in shaping our moral imagination since 1945. And the norm, this norm of equality of voice, that when anybody speaks, we are bound to listen and hear, shaped my work everywhere. I mean, let me give you the sense of that. I, I went to some of the most desperately poor places I've ever been in my life. I'm a nice, privileged, middle-class guy from Canada. And I would go to places, favelas in Rio, and I would go to shacks on the outskirts of Pretoria, South Africa, where people had literally nothing but a but a, but a tin sheet to protect them from, from the rain. Uh, they were like on Shakespeare's Heath. You know, they were out alone in the world. They had no water, no heat, no light, no sanitation, no police, no nothing. And yet when you sat down with them outside their shacks and spent a, a morning with them as, as we did, the norm of equality of voice was just there in every encounter. They took it for granted that someone like me coming from far away uh, had to listen to them, uh, that what they had to say mattered, that they were not a piece of garbage uh, that could be thrown away by their society. That sense informed every conversation I had with the poorest people I ever met, as with the richest and most privileged. And so the norm, we may be skeptical and cynical about the norm, and we may say, God, we've got so much ground to cover uh, to make the norm of equality correspondent to, to the reality. But don't forget the importance of the norm. It's triggered, I, I think you could call a kind of 
nonstop revolution of, of rising expectations. Uh, the inequalities that remain in our life are more and more insupportable because of the norm. Um, and uh, that's set up, um, the, the, uh, it's also set up something I want to focus on now, which is the, the conflict between that universal norm of equality of voice and the ordinary virtues. Because one of the things I want to say is that the ordinary virtues have been shaped by equality. We all start from the assumption we ought, we don't, but we ought to treat individuals equally. We ought to treat them with respect. We ought to treat them irrespective of race, gender, creed, color, whatever. But the ordinary virtues incline us in a different way. And it's that conflict between the universal and the ordinary virtues I want to uh, focus on now. It's kind of the contrast between what we owe everyone and we what and what we owe to our own. These are not these pull us in very different ways. Um, so I want to I want to talk about that a little bit, and I want to set out a contrast. I think between I'm going to get a little theoretical here. Don't don't worry, folks. You don't have to fasten your safety belts. It's going to be okay. Um, I like to keep it practical as well, but I want to set up a contrast between the what I would call the universal perspective, the human rights perspective on, on morality, and this ordinary virtue perspective, and show you how actually how different they are. Um, let's start with the human rights perspective. First of all, you know, in, in the human rights perspective, the universal perspective, what matters most is what we share with other human beings. When I look out here, you're all human beings. Um, your differences are secondary. Your identity as human beings is primary. And so what marks us apart, the fact that some of you are men, some of you are women, some of you are black, some of you are white, some of you are gay, some of you are straight, all the differences we have are secondary and unimportant. What matters is the common humanity we have. Um, and some of that is some of that longing to relate to each other through a, a universal language is captured so beautifully by Martin Luther King's, you know, the immortal remark about wanting a world in which we judge each other not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. Um, or as my as my mother used to say, you know, her my mother's ideal of a of, of a good world would be a world where all dislike was strictly personal. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I. I just don't like you. It's not your race. It's not your color. It's not your orientation. I, it's you that's the problem. You know? It's an anti-utopian view of the good life. But I, I've I've never forgotten her telling me that. Anyway, but and and there, what you would focus on is is the human universality, and then your problem with people would be strictly individual. That's that was what she was trying to capture. Um, now the upside of a focus on universality, on what we share, is that it disciplines moral partiality. It says you may be tempted to judge someone by the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their gender, but the universal perspective is always pulling us back from that, saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, focus on the individual, focus, remember uh, the common humanity we have. So that's the upside of the universal values. The downside, the downside is that it doesn't give us a way to choose. And politically, we have to choose. We have to choose who to favor, who to distribute things to, who gets it and who doesn't. 
and, and, and universality backs us into a whole set of problems about distribution, which I, I want to share with you in a, in a few concrete examples. So that's the universal perspective that I think we all, we all have, we all long to have our life guided by, that we just deal with each other as human beings, not divided by all these differences. But the ordinary virtues perspective that I focus on a lot in the book takes a very different view. It was something that began to surface as I listened to people right across the world, from South Africa to, to, um, uh, to Brazil. Um, in the ordinary virtues perspective, um, the difference is primary, not the universal. The world, in an ordinary virtues perspective, is divided into us and them, self and other. Critically, citizen versus stranger, family versus everyone else. Um, and the virtues are displayed, are local. Um, if you ask yourself um, what, what, how ordinary virtues work out, it, it's, you think about it as a theater of justification. You know, when we live our moral lives, one of our question is, one of our basic question is always, how, to whom do I justify this act? To whom do I justify myself? And if you ask that question, you get local answers very quickly. If I ask myself that question, the person I have to justify myself to mostly is sitting in this room in the second row, right? Uh, and I'm sure you would answer the same thing. It's, it's your loved ones. It's your kith and kin. You're not justifying yourself to all mankind. You're justifying it to your wife, to your lover, to your, your son, your daughter, your kith and kin, your own people. It's not a universalist uh, morality at all. It's, it's local. It's focused. And it's based on who you have to justify yourself to. And when you're displaying your virtues, you're displaying them to that particular theater, that particular set of human beings. And the virtues that ordinary virtues celebrate are, you know, you take people one at a time, you live and let live, and you take care of your own first. Those kind of commonsensical moral principles I saw everywhere around the world. Uh, whether it was a favela in Rio or a shack in Pretoria or um, an um, uh, immigrant uh, apartment in, in Queens, New York. So in the ordinary virtues perspective, difference is primary. It's, that's, that's how moral life works, not uh, the universal. Now the upside of the ordinary virtues perspective on life is we know how to choose. We take care of our own first. We take care of citizens first. We take of our people first, everybody else second. The downside, self-evidently, is we shut the door to strangers. We shut our hearts to strangers. We shut our hearts to what is different. Uh, and so this, this conflict between an ordinary virtues perspective and the universalist perspective is pretty, pretty important. Um, and so... Where are we? We've had a moral revolution that has banged home into our heads a new norm of equality. And it comes head-to-head -head with an ordinary virtues perspective that puts a priority on our own first. And a lot of our moral life is a deep struggle over those issues. Um, 
To whom do we owe an account of our conduct? It's not the human race. It's not all mankind or all womankind. It's our own. And this prior priority for our own is a constant uh, moral temptation away from universality. And the function of human rights, the function of universality, is to restrain that natural partiality we have towards our own. Human rights is basically what you could call counter-majoritarian. You know, it, it's to say, I, I don't care if the whole room thinks X. Human beings have rights, and that has to be respected, and that has to work against the bias of, of majoritarian uh, preference. Um, so let me, let me bring this back a little bit to, to L.A., where I, where I started a minute ago. I mean, how does this all work in, in, in practice? I was so struck in, in L.A. by, um, and I was, I was talking to our poet laureate before, and we were talking about how incredibly specific neighborhoods are in L.A., I mean, you literally cross one highway and you're in another neighborhood and then you're in another neighborhood and you're driving with an Angelino. They say, oh, that, that's that community and then that community. And if you're a stranger, it's baffling how everybody has this geography that's incredibly specific and rooted. And much of that geography is racial and ethnic and class-based in ways that a, a stranger just doesn't know. And these neighborhoods are, are incredibly complex communities that interact, that maintain boundaries, uh, their real estate boundaries, their geographical boundaries, their psychic boundaries, their human boundaries, and yet somehow, that's the mystery, the whole thing kind of hangs together. Uh, it generates a moral operating system for the whole community that more or less works. Um, there's a reluctant admission that we are all human beings in this together, and if, excuse my language, we screw this up, we could all go down together. Part of what L.A. lives with, it seems to, or it seemed to me, I may be completely wrong, is a, is a, is a kind of ancestral memory of how it went wrong a couple of times, and how if you mess this up, it could really go wrong, and so everybody has a prudential sense of a common interest in keeping a moral operating system uh, uh, working uh, together, despite very substantial ethnic and racial uh, self-sorting and segregation and uh, neighborhoods that uh, live side by side but not together. That's an important part of, of moral order everywhere, that we live side by side but not together. You saw that in Queens, you see that in parts of South Africa, you definitely see that in Rio. People live together, they know they have to live together, but they want to self-sort, keep apart. So you have moral worlds which are, uh, in which the ordinary virtues basically apply to your neighborhood. The circle of trust is basically those you know, people like you. At the same time, you have to find some way to stitch the whole thing together, because you've got, if you don't, the thing will blow up. Uh, all the communities that I visited, South Africa, Brazil, Los Angeles, New York, are all in that constant struggle to keep the show on the road. Clearly one of the things that, that happened in L.A. that was a kind of flash of illumination for me is that the breakdown point was, a, was, was in two cases, police violence. Um, and, and that brought home to me the relationship between virtue and institutions, which was cited in the, 
in the um, in the kind introduction. Um, uh, you you can have societies that are very unjust, very unequal, big differences in in income, big differences in life opportunity. Uh, what keeps it together is a rough and ready equality before the law. And when that gets broken, when someone gets beaten up publicly by the police, all bets are off. And, and the key point about that is that it's an infringement of a basic moral assumption. This society is unequal, this society is unfair, this society is unjust, but two things have to be true. One of it is there has to be some ladder where I can climb, some ladder where I can get up, up the rungs, right, and look after my family and provide, okay? The second thing I have to have is when I get stopped by the police, I'm not going to be knocked around because of my race, my gender, my class, whatever. I'm going to be treated like a citizen or a member of a political community, right? And when that second thing breaks down, when the law and order breaks down, when the rough and ready equality that the police have to deliver on the streets breaks down, look out. Uh, that has happened over and over and over, particularly in the United States, because the United States lives by a certain very specific creed about equality for the law and is a very long distance from where it wants to be, but it, the reason someone like me who's not an American loves your society is you are struggling to get there, uh, trying to get there, recurrently failing to get there. And when it breaks down, it really breaks down, but that's the thing that must work if anything is to work. All of you know that. I'm saying something that may just be perfectly obvious, but it was certainly salient in L.A., certainly salient also in every other community I went to. Let me, uh, I, I, I'm aware of that I don't want to try your patience. I wanted to, to, to shift slightly to another sensitive topic, which is migration and immigration as a way of illuminating the, the conflict between human rights universal values, and the ordinary virtues. Um, and I choose this example of migration not with the current um, U.S. debates about build a wall and all that stuff. You can raise that and question if you want. I raise it in this context because I happen to live in Hungary where the government has just won a huge victory basically trying to build a wall around Hungary and prevent any kind of migration. So migration is an issue that I'm... I'm concerned about. Let me just try and illuminate this, this conflict between universal values and ordinary virtues through the migration issue by focusing on the fact that in a, in a universalist perspective on migration, uh, refugees and migrants have rights. They are human beings, many of them fleeing war, chaos, famine, economic uh, misfortune, um, and they have... Uh, rights under the Refugee Convention. They have other uh, kinds of rights. They can't be sent back in, in, in any instance where they uh, face a risk of torture. So from a universal values perspective, you're, you're looking at human beings with claims, with rights and claims. And because they have rights, then the citizens on the other side of the wall, they have obligations towards those strangers. That's a universalist perspective on migration and refugees. And it looks obvious. The interesting thing about an ordinary virtues perspective on migration is that it sees it completely differently. That is, it says, 
There are citizens who are members of a political community, and then there are strangers at the gate. And citizens ought to decide who gets in, how many people get in, right? It's not a matter of rights. It's a matter of gifts. A citizen makes a gift of entry into the United States or entry in any political community as a gift. A citizen chooses who comes in, gives the gift. It's the language of gifts, not the language of rights. And, and, and this is a much more fundamental division on these issues than, than, than people suppose. A lot of citizens in countries, as includes Canada, as you may know, Canada is a perfect country. Um, <laughs> we are faultless, especially on migration and refugees. But in Canada, the rights perspective, the idea that there are a lot of strangers out there who have rights and therefore claims on our, you know, on, on getting into the country, comes up absolutely smack against a converse view, which is Canadian citizen thinks we're a generous country, we're a compassionate country, we will choose to let a certain number of people in, and it's the gift we give to strangers. And so what sustains generous refugee policy in our country is the language of the gift, not the language of rights. And a lot of, I'm an old-fashioned, old-style universalist liberal. And what's interesting to me is the, the universalist liberal language gets nowhere. The language that works is the language of the gift. You can't, appeal to your, you can't appeal to your fellow citizens on the basis of you have an obligation to take people in. The way you can work it politically is to say, be a, gen be a generous person, give the gift. And, and this is a way of illustrating that the conflict between a language of universal values and this language of uh, ordinary virtues. Because the language of ordinary virtues is a language of generosity. It's not a language of obligation and rights. Um, so, uh, let me work towards a conclusion. I'm raising all these issues because I think we're in the middle of a huge historical backlash against that triple revolution that I began to describe at the beginning. The self-determination revolution, people are very um, disillusioned with a post-colonial world. Most of these countries don't seem to have made a, much of a fist of, of independence and freedom. Uh, there is a backlash against democracy around the world. Authoritarian rule has got a better press and seems to have a brighter future than uh, democratic uh, freedom. And critically, there's a backlash against universal values and, and human rights, a very strong backlash. And you see it in the ways in which the United States, which is for all its faults and failings, been a human rights leader, has walked away from its uh, human rights uh, leadership uh, worldwide. And, and the, the aspect of this backlash that I want to focus on a little bit is the ways in which the ordinary virtues um, give priority to your own, us versus them, give priority to the, 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 the local virtues. These virtues are being captured and confiscated by politicians in a way that is beginning to deform them. You start with ordinary virtues which are not blameworthy in themselves. The preference, a sense that you're a member of a political community and a political community ought to choose who gets in, uh, uh, that um, 
What is virtuous is to care first for your family and your own. These are not vices. These are virtues. And then what happens politically is that politicians seize on these virtues and begin to deform them, begin to confiscate them. So that, so that um, in, in Hungary, where I live, and I'm married to a Hungarian, so I love Hungarian culture and society. It's not a knock on Hungary. It is almost a betrayal of being Hungarian to show generosity to a stranger anymore. The, the very idea that you could have a Muslim come across the border has is, is been taken over by this political system and converted into a, a betrayal of what it is to be a Hungarian. And, and this, this leader has just won a, a, a democratic mandate by promising to bring back a Christian democracy. Look at the code here. I mean no disrespect to the Christian faith, but it, it seems a kind of monstrous deformation of the whole spirit of Christianity to say you can't take anybody in except it's going to threaten your country. So you start with things that are okay. Patriotism, love of your own, preference for your own, preference for citizens. And by the time you've finished, admitting no one is the... Is, is what you end up with. You start with low, ordinary virtues which are in themselves pretty good things and things I want to praise in this book and you end up building walls. And this confiscation of virtue, this confiscation of some instincts of patriotism, preference for your own, local virtues, ends up in a dark and terrible place and I, I'm seeing it in Hungary, I'm, I'm not going to pontificate about your country but Look out. Watch out, folks. This, this could be coming to a theater near you. Um, so, you know, what begins as a legitimate preference for your own is turned into hatred, fear, and exclusion. And that language, raising up a little bit, the language of democratic sovereignty, one of the most noblest languages in politics. We should rule ourselves. We should choose our own fate. We should choose our own rulers. That language of democratic sovereignty, which again is, is fueled and powered by a preference for, 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 for citizenship. That whole language has been turned against international engagement. Um, it's been turned against the idea that we have responsibilities to people fleeing war and famine. Uh, we have responsibility to, to defend the human rights of, of strangers in, in other countries. And this backlash, we're in the middle of a huge backlash against that triple revolution. And, and I, I don't see an easy way out. All I can do as a, some kind of analyst is describe it so you know what we're, what's coming at you. And, and we begin to think together about what we do about it. Um, what do we do? Uh, we need to strengthen both the ordinary virtues and the universal values. I've, I've said that there are ways in which you start with these, universe, uh, these ordinary virtues and they get confiscated by politicians and turned into something uh, uh, vicious. Uh, I've also said that universal values are fine, but they, they don't help us when we have to choose who to, who to give preference to. So the issue is how we balance uh, the preference we ought to accord to citizens with the obligations we have to strangers. Um, I don't have magic answers to any of this. I just want to frame what the issue is. My, my sense when I was in L.A., the times I felt best is when I was in a, um, a Baptist church or I was in a synagogue or I was in a mosque or I was in a 
community gathering, and I felt this kind of communities being strengthened by good leadership, and, and, and they were building off the ordinary virtues of people, the, the desire of people to trust each other, the desire of people to, to build connections across neighborhoods. All that building from, bottom, from the bottom made me feel optimistic. I actually took a very optimistic message out of my time in L.A., much more so in an odd way than I took from, from some other people. But the other thing, the other conclusion I drew from L.A. and from everywhere else is that, you know, local communities can't do it on their own. To go back to my, my policing point earlier, um, all bets are off in this society or any society if, if communities of race or color feel that the cops are not fair, that, that, that justice is racialized. It's the one thing everywhere I went, South Africa, Brazil, uh, the United States, Canada, my own country, that just tears uh, the capacity of communities to work together. It's the, it's the one piece of damage that can just blow uh, the moral operating system of a city apart. So we need to, we need to understand uh, the, the importance of justice. Uh, the understand, and, and justice is not an abstraction. It's what happens when the guy gets out of the squad car. It's what happens when the justice uh, hears a case. It's what happens when lawyers do their job. Over and over again, that turned out to be the central institution we need to strengthen in order to strengthen communities um, and make sure that that universal value of justice is just ground out daily. Justice is not a theory. Justice is not an abstraction. It's a social practice that, that has to work. If you don't have that kind of justice, a city becomes a jungle, a, jungle, a war of all against all. And there have been moments in this community when you've come close to that and you do not want to go back to it. And you want finally at the national level to have a have had a democracy that, just speaking personally as someone who loves this country, you n never forget what you have meant to your friends overseas. Uh, never forget what America has meant uh, to people of my generation and after. Um, because you've been a, dem a democracy that somehow managed a fierce, terrifying patriotism with a deep engagement with the world. You're the country that man married nationalism and internationalism. Uh, you did it with Roosevelt. You also did it with Ronald Reagan. This is not a partisan political plea you know, down the democratic line of the pipe. It's something that you managed to do in that period from kind of 1932 right you know, uh, through, through, through much of your history. You must get back to it because it is a balance in fact, between the universal values, the universal values of human rights, the universal values of engagement of the world with the ordinary virtues of love of your own uh, and as, you know, as Bruce Springsteen's day, wherever this flag is flown, we take care of our own. The genius of America is that. But you've managed to combine it with a deep commitment to others. Don't lose it. Don't forget it. Thank you so much for listening.
my name is um, Stephen Pierre Elliott Gabriel Duga. I'm a student at Glendale Junior College in Glendale, California. Um, my, my question is this: um, You said in you said just right now that um, that our pol the politicians around the world bastardized the the idea of ordinary ordinary um, virtues and abandoning the um, the universal bad, uh, mm. virtues. How do we um, um, go get back to those those two ideas, but mm. at the same time protect both un universal virtues and also um, ordinary virtues? Mm -hmm. I don't have brilliant answers other than it, it seems to me um, it, it, it depends tremendously on politics, by which I mean nights like this, moments where we think about what the heck is going on uh, and frame it. All I've been able to do is try and frame it in a way you might not have heard before. Um, uh, get away from a, a way in which we think that anybody who disagrees with this is a racist or get into a frame of thinking where we're where, where we're binary. Part of my point about the ordinary virtues is that a lot of the politics that an old-style liberal like me doesn't, doesn't agree with actually starts in a very good place with some values that any person needs to understand and appreciate. Um, uh, and, and then what we need to understand is how some of those virtues get curdled, get exploited, get 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 turned into hatred, get turned into exclusion, get turned into rejection in ways that are really damaging. Not to my precious liberal ideology, but damaging to the places we love. And, and that's all I can do. I can't, I can't give you an answer. I'm trying to just frame it so we can then think about how we do it. But we also have to stand, whatever your party, whatever your political conviction, against the cultivation of hatred. Um, you know, it, it just is the one poison that, that, that is just deeply, deeply damaging. The idea that you rally people by, by appealing to, to that, uh, sooner or later, it, it, it blows. You conjure up the spirits of the deep, and they will blow the whole thing apart. And, and just the, the basic lesson of politics, and I've been a democratic politician, I put my name on a ballot, is you do not conjure up those spirits of the deep. Uh, it's just too dangerous. We all have a common interest in keeping this show on the road. And we're in the middle, my point about the triple revolution, is we're in the middle of the biggest experiment that modern democracies have ever tried, which is how we live together in a democratic polity with differences of race, creed, color, gender, and sexual orientation. We're trying an experiment that basically began in the mid-60s and has only been running for 50 years. I'm very confident we're going to get this right. But the only thing we can be damn sure of is if you start conjuring up division like this, you can blow the whole thing sky high, right? So let's, let's just smarten up here, you know, whatever your party. Don't go there. It's just my sense of is is basic an instinct of prudence. We have a common interest here. I felt it in LA, a sense of let's keep this show on the road. I saw community leaders working every day. I I talked to former gang leaders in South Central who were trying to pull people back from violence, right? Pretty inspiring stuff.
because they know that way madness lies, right? We're closer to madness than we realize, is my sense. And so let's, let's just walk back from it all. Uh, my question, I was taking notes, as you can see. Um, you were talking about the, um, the refugees. And as we saw um, last week um, in Gaza, the Palestinians, they started their um, great return march on March 30th, land day. And there was a nonviolent, um, peaceful march. And they wanted to get basically the, uh, the um, United Nations 194, the right to return. As we saw Israel, they committed a, a massacre, mm -hmm. killing over 60 people, including an eight-month-year girl. Mm -hmm. My question to you, you talk about justice and, and the rights. What's your thoughts on Israel creating an apartheid regime, um, mm -hmm. the, the blockade in Gaza, and um, continue their colonialism? What do, what do I feel? I feel sorrow. You know, I... I've um, been to Israel many times. I've been to Gaza. Um, I've been to the West Bank. I just feel sorrow. I, I feel a, a sense of terrible tragedy. I, I don't, and I, I think that sense of tragedy and sorrow is shared by Palestinians and many Israelis. I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a pretty strong defender and through my public life and my private life of, of uh, the state of Israel. I'm a two-state guy, you know. I, I don't think Israel will be, will be secure until there is a, a Palestinian state on the other side. I'm, I hang on to it through thick and thin, although the, 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 the possibilities of this are, are, you know, not made easier by what happened last week. But I... I you know, and I'm out of politics now, and I've got nothing to say about it other than, you know, if we could, if both sides here could, 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 could recognize sorrow, could recognize pain, uh, could recognize the equality of pain. Um, you know, you, you lose a child to an Israeli bullet, it hurts the same way if, if, if you have lost a, a life to a to, to a, a, a stabbing by a Palestinian. You know, this is where universality really matters because the pain of loss is absolutely equivalent on both sides, actually. And, and out of that uh, experience of, of suffering and pain, um, something positive just has to happen. Again, because if it, if it doesn't, uh, two wonderful peoples will end up killing each other to the last man and woman. You think that the universal values are our final goal and that ordinary virtues are just a bridge to get <laughs> to that point that we can one day let go of and use well, the universal values as our main motivations? Or the ordinary virtues will always be there with us and yeah. they'll always be yeah. core to our moral operating system, as you say. I, I think I'm trying to argue against the idea that uh, ordinary virtues are kind of transitional, you know, they're kind of slightly backward, uh, they're kind of, you know, they're, you know, they, as the world globalizes, for example, we're going to become less local, less, you know, less, give less preference to our own, we become more cosmopolitan, you know, all this. I, I don't believe that story at all. Uh, we've had economic globalization, 
globalization mark one in the 19th century, globalization mark two, 1945 to 1989, globalization three, which is this storm we're living in. Um, I don't think it's made us any less attached to, to our own, to locality, to region, to neighborhood. In fact, globalization has accentuated our attachment to these things precisely because we feel they're being swept away. I don't think our destination is towards universality. What I actually think is we're, we're living with a permanent and ever-growing conflict between our universal attachment or our universal obligations to human beings as such and the conflicting pull of nation, class, tribe, gender, orientation, the whole business. And we struggle with that all the time. And I don't think that is going to go away anytime soon. In fact, that seems to me a definition of what our moral life actually is. I have this theory that this whole um, human rights and universalistic um, journey we've been on for the past 30 years is really too abstract mm -hmm. for us as, you know, essentially animals to, <laughs> to really grasp. I mean, so I... Um, yeah. I can relate, you know, I know that we're all equal and we're all human beings, but I can't relate to every human being in this room. I can only relate to one or two at a time. Mm -hmm. And I live in this very liberal city, and I, do I feel like I, I have my rights and I'm considered equal? Yeah. yeah. Do I feel like I have community? No. And is that, that's actually um, detrimental to my, to my life. And so I'm just curious what you think about this idea of it's operating at too high a level of abstraction mm -hmm. for yeah. it actually to work yeah. and... and but no. uh, benefit our lives in a lot of ways. About 30 seconds, you put my point better than I did. I mean, I, I went out in the world to seven or eight locations, and, and my kind of research question was, how does human rights play in your moral decision-making? Answer, not very much at all, ever, anywhere, right? I'm a, I've been a human rights teacher most of my life. I've taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students the principles of human rights universality. But I've almost never met a human being who, when they faced with a real moral dilemma, what do I do now, said, what, what do I owe human beings as such? I mean, no one r r r reasons like Immanuel Kant when they're in a tight corner. And I don't say that. I, I never want to traffic with anti-intellectualism. I love Immanuel Kant, respect him, and have learned from him. I'm just saying, when I'm in a jam, I don't reason like him. I mean, afterwards, in cool, recollected tranquility, I read the critique of pure reason, I think, Wow, that's clever stuff. But when I'm figuring out what I do with my son or my daughter or dealing with a... You know what I'm saying? So that has been the problem with human rights. It is too abstract. It makes a presumption about human beings that I don't think is, ex is actually sociologically true. You're always dealing with the person in front of you, and that person is black or white, gay or straight, male or female a person situated in history, a person of a certain social class in a particular neighborhood. And that's your situation. That's what you have to think about. And human rights comes in to the degree that it's a kind of second or third order thing where you actually think, well, after all, she is a human being as well. And that, and that counts. I'm not saying it's early, but it counts late in the story. After all, she is a human being, you think, after you've thought a lot of other things about what you owe each other. Right? I've got a question about your uh, framing of the values and the, um, and the, sorry, 
the ordinary values and the universal yeah. um, human rights. So obviously, the with the ordinary virtues, it's sort of placing emphasis on those near and dear, and the universal human rights yeah. is more on everyone um, themselves, uh, taking as a kind of common vision. What I'm wondering is, you know, one could easily imagine you could flip the narrative of both those accounts, right, where you could present a vision of human rights as due to the proliferation of human rights talk over the last 30 years, it's people are more clashing against each other, my rights against your rights, mm. that that language tends to be escalatory, makes mm. sometimes controversial issues more difficult to discuss. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could flip the talk about ordinary virtues and say, well, actually the virtues is excellences of character that focus on things like generosity and compassion mm. and charity actually are better able to sort of, you know, pursue a vision of the common good that can heal some of these fractured mm -hmm. divides. So mm -hmm. I, I mentioned those just inversions not to to say that's what I believe, or arguments at the side, but just to sort of point out mm -hmm. two different ways of framing yep. the issue. And so is it possible then to have a third way that sees both the value in rights and the values in justice, which is somewhat common, I guess, to like the classical view of justice, mm -hmm. which was as not as a value, but as a virtue, the willingness of people to give others what they're due. So is mm -hmm. there an account that could merge mm -hmm. those two rather than seeing them as necessarily antagonistic to each other? Mm -hmm. I think you're saying something important about, um, just in passing, you, you said that sometimes rights talk makes stuff tougher to solve. I think there's no question about that. Um, I have my rights, you have your rights, boom. What it, how, how do you, rights talk can, can, can escalate a dispute into something irreconcilable or irresolvable. Um, I think that's true. Um, I also think that um, the language of virtues, the language of generosity and compassion, my example about migration was designed to show there's a way of using that language, and I don't mean using it in an instrumental way, but just appealing to it, having been in politics. I just know that stuff allows you to create the political basis for a, for a, a refugee and migration policy that doesn't build walls. Um, so you, you want to use these, these two languages. I'm trying to find some reconciliation simply because I, I feel uh, kind of in a, like an answer to the previous question that in concrete practical situations of moral decision making, it's important to have a language of, of human rights that says, after all, we are talking about human beings here. That is, there is something here that Every moral moment is a human moment, not just a moment of you know male versus female, rich versus poor, black versus white, gay versus straight. It's always a moment in which two human beings encounter each other. And human rights and universal values have that kind of they pull it they can that that language can pull us back from the brink of 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 ir, of, of irreconcilable conflict. And those of you who are listening carefully will realize I've just contradicted myself in the space of a paragraph. I said, on the one hand, human rights talk makes it more difficult to solve things. I've also said it's also true upon occasion that human rights universal can, can remind us, can remind Israelis and Palestinians, various groups, this is a human encounter and has to be solved by human beings. Uh, my name is Leticia Velasquez, and I'll try to be direct. Um, first of all, I felt like there was a few conflations and unnecessary connections. So first of all, I just I liked the contrast between the heroic values, heroic virtues, and the ordinary virtues. 
But I was wondering why you're delimiting the moral universe with ordinary virtues to a local. Why can't we have that with um, the universe, like applied like with human rights? I don't see the connection between rights and um, I don't see the, con the necessary connection between ordinary virtual virtues and just the local circle. I think the connection was there to me because that's observationally what I found. That is, um, every, I'd go to a, a you know a favela on the hillside uh, in, in Rio. I'd, I'd go to a squatter camp in Pretoria. I'd go to um, a, uh, a Buddhist community in Mandalay. Uh, what was so striking to me was, despite you know, um, the, this tide of globalization that swept over all these communities. In each one of these communities, everybody had a cell phone. In each of these communities, everybody was informed that there was a president called Mr. Trump. I mean, everybody knew Michael Jackson, right? I mean, global culture everywhere, um, and yet when you ask people what they worried about and what they talked about and how they justified themselves and who they justified themselves to, it's all, it's all local. My name is Stephen Levine. In the section of your book on Jackson Heights, mm -hmm. you emphasize the necessity of uh, economic opportunity, mm -hmm. the ability to climb up yeah. if communities are gonna live side by side. Uh, then you visit communities around the world where there is essentially no economic opportunity for large parts of the population. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of economics of the ordinary virtues? Yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful, it's a wonderful question. And in a sense, um, the economic opportunity ladder that I said was so essential in Queens and is so essential in LA is also a function of the moral expectations of American society and the promise that American society makes. Other societies don't make that promise. Brazil does not, I mean, I've just made a massive generalization, it's probably false. Any Brazilian in the audience can get up and scream at me freely. But Brazil doesn't make the same kind of promise. Lulu's, Lulu's party in government tried to make that promise. But it is very striking how, how much um, the language of opportunity has has structured the moral expectations of everybody I talked to in, in Queens who are coming from 130 countries. Why were they coming to Queens? To get on that ladder because this is the country that promises it. It doesn't deliver it terribly well or it delivers it unequally, um, but it, it does make that promise. In other societies, um, uh, you have a different issue. I mean, South Africa is the one that's most haunting to me because I was in a, a community 20 years after Nelson Mandela, after the best liberal constitution the world has ever seen, after a nonviolent transition to thing. And these folks have got nothing out of their society. And by nothing, I mean it's not rhetorical. They have no police, they have no sanitation, they have no water, they have no light. They could be on Mars. I don't, I found it difficult on the economics, I found it actually difficult to understand how they live. One of the ways they live is through the charitable organization that took me out there, which is a religious Christian organization that's trying to get them to at least grow some food, right? I mean really terrible. So there's a society that actually wanted to take the language of opportunity, 
constitutional liberty and hope and has just simply betrayed you know millions and millions of people and it, it's it's heartbreaking now it may change now with the with the new leadership in south africa but it was pretty awful when i was there and, and was that not built into the constitution from the start uh, the isolation of the bank and the financial system oh, yeah. and ownership from the actual issues that the constitution was based on oh there's no there there's absolutely no question there's a chapter in this book, uh, in, in the book, about uh, one of the things that was most shocking to me, which was this uh, Maracana ma massacre. As you know, South Africa depends on, you know, plutonium, gold, and silver mining. It's a highly concentrated late capitalist industrial economy, which employs huge amounts of of, of uh, unskilled labor underground in very tough conditions. And these guys struck for higher wages in the new South Africa. And, you know, who was the vice president of the, the mine? It's the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa. What did Cyril Ramaphosa do? He's a, he's a good man. This is not a personal knock. But what did he do? He wanted the cops to come in and shoot these guys down, and they did. They just machine gun about 35 of them uh, to, to basically say the South African state is behind this plutonium mine come what may and it looked very much like apartheid South Africa it, it's, a, it's a bad story so the, that's where the economics uh, surges up and, and again to, to, to make your point I guess you can have a liberal constitution but if you don't have economic justice or do something about the, the concentration of economic power, the people who that constitution is supposed to benefit aren't going to get a hell of a lot. I mean, that... Thank you. Yeah. Before we close, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us on behalf of Socolo Public Square here for the 8th Annual Socolo Public Square Book Prize Lecture. Uh, please stick around, join us for the reception, grab drinks with us. Also, our favorite local bookseller, Skylight Books, is here tonight selling copies of The Ordinary Virtues, Moral Order, and a Divided World by Michael Ignatieff. Please give a very big round of applause to Mr. Michael Ignatieff. Thank you.